Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in the second Parsha, and we're in the second triennial year. We were in the first year last year, and so now we're in the second, uh, second third of every Parsha. If you want to know what that is, if you want to look at home before you come to class, you can look at HebCal. Uh, I don't know if it's .com or .org. I never know. Um, it's HebCal.com. I want to say org always. Um, HebCal.com. And it will tell you the second triennial reading for every single Parsha. And it will even tell you the date. Like if you don't know what Parsha we're on, click somewhere in, in Genesis and it will give you the date that portion is read. So we are. We would have started if we were starting at the beginning of the second triennial portion. We would have been looking at the Rainbow Covenant. Instead, we're going to move a little past that, and we're going to start at chapter nine, verse eighteen, and uh, we're going to look at the story, this bizarre incident that we have um, of Ham, Shem, and Yafet, the sons of Noah. So if you look at the board, you see that I've given you some stories from other cultures. From Greece, we have a story of five brothers, including Kronos, who castrate and supplant Uranus, their father. Also from Greece, we have a story of Zeus with Poseidon and Hades doing the same thing to Uranus. We have a Hittite story of a son and uh, the cupbearer, Kumarbi. Uh, they bite off the genitals of Anu, the supreme god, and they rejoice and laugh uh, as they do this. And Philo uh, gives us a story of Uranus being castrated by El. So, hold that in your mind. <laughs> As we look at, probably won't be difficult, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> Chapter nine. Uh, we're going to read through the story, and then I'm going to ask you why I put that on the board. Chapter nine, eighteen. Someone wants to read. The sons of Noah came out to work. Uh, came out of the ark were uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham being the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole world branched out. Noah, the tiller of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and he uncovered himself within his tent. Ham, <coughs> the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a cloth, placed it against both their backs, and walking backwards, they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke up from his wine and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Hanan, the lowest of slaves, shall he be his brothers. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be a slave to them. May God enlarge, enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be a slave to them. Noah lived after the flood 350 years and all the days of Noah came to 950 years, then he died. Okay. You should know 
that, because there's no way you would know this unless I tell you this, um, that in the in, in the near, ancient Near East and in the Mediterranean, we, we know that there's a flood story for anyone, every one of those cultures, right? Those of us who've been learning together for any length of time know that there's a flood story in every single one of those ancient Near Eastern cultures, every single one. The fact that we have a flood story is nothing new. It's nothing different. It's nothing exciting. What are we always looking for? We, if everyone else has a flood story, what are we looking for in our flood story? How did we change it? How did the Israelites change? How did they reconstruct the flood story? What is the Israelite innovation on that story? That's what we're looking for when we know there are other stories just like this in the ancient world. So we, we have a flood story everywhere. What we don't get in lots of places, um, is we, in any place actually that we can find, is the survivor of the flood being somebody who then has like a life on the planet. What we have is the survivor becomes divine. Somehow they are kind of displaced from this world. In every other one of the flood stories, the survivor becomes somehow other. So one Israelite reconstruction of the flood narrative is that there is a human survivor, two human survivors, right? Like Noah and his wife, and they beget children, and their children beget the rest of us. So that's a very important thing. It's very important that because what, what Torah is saying is the survivor is not divine. Why would Torah be so concerned with that? With making sure we have human survivors. Bless you. There is only one divine. Thank you, Reuben. Torah has to make a story of human survivors of the flood. Has to, has to. Otherwise... Anyone hearing our flood story would say, oh, so that's how you got part of your God was the, the survivor, right? No, 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 right, right. The Israelites have to be very clear. Our survivor was human and had other humans and right, very, very human, right? But we hear some echoes, possibly, so I'm going to put it out to you. Possibly we hear echoes of these stories here. Some scholars want to argue, absolutely, this, this story is a reconstruction by the Israelites of these stories from the neighborhood. Other scholars want to argue that is absolutely fundamentally untrue. What we have is the opposite. It has nothing to do with these. Okay. So some scholars want to say there's even proof that there's remnants of these stories of castration um, by sons to their fa of their father. There's proof of it because if you look in the Talmud, we have arguments with the rabbis talking about this story and what is it that has been done to Noah? We're going to look at the text more carefully. Um, and the rabbis answer, he was castrated by Ham. Either he's castrated or there is a homosexual act that Ham um, does with Noah while he's unconscious. That's in the Talmud. So some scholars want to say, if it's in the Talmud, obviously there's a connection, right? Because this is talking about, though all these stories are talking about castration by the sun, and so does the Talmud even. But I read an, an article that said, absolutely not. So we're, we're going to get into it and we're going to see what you think. All right. So the sons of Noah who came out of the ark are Shem, Ham, and Yafet. Yes? Right. Ham, 
is the father of Canaan. Right? Alright. So, hopefully you already see by, by how the story ends, hopefully you already see what part of the point of this story is. Yeah? So we're, we're gonna, we're gonna look at it, but, but for sure you, you can, you can see why this story is here just by how it ends. So the three sons of Noah, um, become the progenitors of the entire world, right? Of, of every human being on the planet. Because everybody else, right, is gone in the flood. Noah is a farmer, right? So already it's kind of like, oh, interesting. Okay, wh- why is he a farmer? <laughs> why pick farming? Okay. So um, clearly written by settled agriculturalists, right? If, if the person who founds the rest of everybody else, this is not a semi-nomadic pastoralist tradition. This is clearly a settled agrarian tradition that wants to say the, the original human was, of course, a farmer, right? But you have to remember that the farmers are in conflict with the semi-nomadic pastoralists. Those two ways of life are in conflict because one means moving around and nobody owns anything. But if you're a farmer, you are very invested in owning that land and owning its produce, right? So these are two ways of life that are in very serious conflict. Um, our right. Hebrew is Ish Ahadama. Huh? The Hebrew for what Noah is is Ish Ahadama. Yeah, a man of the because soil. A man of the okay, that, a man of the earth. Literally means because we would say he's a man of the earth, he's broader than a farmer. Or does that clearly mean he's? Yeah, it, here it means farmer. Okay. That he that he works he works the earth. the earth. He's also producing life, which is what he ends up doing with his his progeny becomes. Life. Right. So he's the first to plant a vineyard. Okay? So now we have a couple things going on. We have he's a farmer, but we also have that he's he's planting something very specific. He's planting wine grapes. Alright, so he's brought the vines, presumably, onto the ark, and he um, he plants this. So where does the ark land? Do we remember where the ark lands? Mount Ararat. So this is in Armenia. This is a place that was known for wine production in the ancient world. So it makes complete sense. If that's where the ark lands, they produce wine. It makes sense that when Noah got off the boat, he would do what's been done forever there is plant a vineyard. That's what grows nicely there. You do well if you plant a vineyard in Armenia. Okay, so... So possibly, but the other possibility is that Noah becomes the founder of wine, right? Like we don't get a mention of wine before now. Possibly, right? This makes him, you know, like Prometheus went and stole fire, right? This is, you know, Noah brings wine into the world. So I've, I've had two two people at the same time say Bacchus, right? So wine is often a part of ritual, right? And and would have been for the people who wrote this story and continues to be for us. And for most people, right, there is some kind of connection of wine to ritual. Um, Remember, Noah is supposed to bring, what happens when he gets off the boat? He's supposed to bring a sacrifice, right? So we have Noah bringing a sacrifice, Noah creating wine. We have Noah as the the kind of proto-priest, So, and, and priests are warned about the same thing, right? That they can't serve in the Mishkan if they're drunk. So clearly there is always this, 
you know, fine line between it being sacred and being profane, and not only profane, but leading to terrible consequences. So some rabbis want to suggest that this story is here to warn people, even Noah, the only one saved from the flood, even Noah <coughs> succumbed to right what happens when you drink too much wine. Well, so they well, that's exactly right. Don't we tell this to our teenagers? Right? This is what can happen. Look at Torah. Before you go to college, we're going to study a little Torah, right? So Noah plants this. He, he works the soil. He plants a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself in his tent. Everyone knows what that means. Everybody knows what that means, right? He's naked in his tent. It's very clear for Torah. That's very, very clear what, what he, what's happening. He uncovers himself in his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Yafet took a cloth, placed it against both their backs, which is an interesting translation, um, and they walked backwards and covered their father's nakedness, right? So they, I, I've, I haven't looked closely at the Hebrew for this, but I heard that they put it on their shoulders, right? So, so he's in the tent. They put some a big cloth on their shoulders. They walk backwards, right? If it's between them, and they drop it on him to to preserve his um, dignity, and they. Presumably, like the point is they don't look, right? So it says, walking backward, they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they did not see their father's nakedness to make it very, very clear that two of them were very concerned with protecting their father's dignity and with making sure they don't um, participate, if you will, in his um, vulnerability. Don't know. So if it's his camper, his bedroom, let's say, can't he be however he wants to be in his bedroom without, you know? So, so clearly, Torah seems to suggest no. And, or maybe, yes, but not when a son comes in and sees it and starts telling everybody, right? So, so Torah has a problem with the fact that people know that he's lying drunk, naked in his tent. Torah has a problem with that. That that seems to be an issue, right? So the the two sons go to take care of that by dropping right this this cloth on their father. When Noah woke up from his wine and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, "Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers." Right? And he said, blessed be Adonai, the God of shame, let Canaan be a slave to them. May God enlarge Yafet and let him dwell in the tents of shame and let Canaan be a slave to them. So why is this story here? Why do we have this story? Eventually, eventually the 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 Israelites leave Egypt, they take over the descendants of Canaan. They take Canaan. The Israelites are going to take Canaan. There has to be a defense of that. There has to be a defense of that. Here it is. How and why does that happen? 
right here. The Kna'an, right, is involved in this. Their original sin. And so their original, the Kna'anites' original sin. Very good, Richard. In Yiddish, when I was growing up, that's what my parents spoke. If, you, if someone was a thumb, he was a terrible person and stupid. Cham, so a stupid, terrible person. That's where it comes from. There you go. Beautiful. So, so what's the problem? We have a few problems here. What? We got a couple of problems. Well, one is you're, you're, you're cursing the son, not the son's father, so, the one who committed the act. So we have a problem of the transfer of the curse from Cham to Kna'an. Ham's the one who does this thing, whatever this thing is, and we'll talk about what that is. Um, but it's Kanaan who gets cursed. We have a problem. We have a problem. So that so we have a couple problems. One is what happened to when Noah saw what his son had done. What is that? And two, we have a problem with the transfer of the curse. This both of these things bother the rabbis. It really bugs the rabbis. What's going on here? So they have to fill in some places. Barbara, were you going to say something? No, I was just saying I'm confused. <laughs> okay, so so tell me. Okay, so people are confused. No, no, you're, you're Let's, explaining it. Okay, so but so where, where's the confusion? What was the curse for? So that they could take Kna'an. There has to be a reason the Israelites can take Kna'an. The land, Kna'an, and the Canaanites serve the Israelites. The land. Yes, of Canaan. They're going to take the land of Canaan. This is the progenitor of the Canaanites. We have to have a reason they're going to be kicked out. When the Israelites go into the promised land, Canaan is there. Canaan is the promised land. Canaan is the promised It's Israel. The Canaanites are there, living a lovely Canaanite life. <laughs> and the myth is that the Israelites come in and conquer them. Ha- we have to have a story that tells us why that's okay. Okay, I didn't say you have to like it or approve of it, but it tells us it's one of the reasons why do we how did the elephant get its trunk? This is one of those tales. We have to have sacred mythology that helps build the case for how Israel could take over Canaan. So the assumption is that this was written thousands of years. This is basically a flashback. Yes. Yes. Thousands of years ago as to, to sort of justify what's happening now. Yes. Uh, now being... You know, the lights moving into Canaan. And, and presumably later than that. Presumably later than that, even. So, what did Ham do that was so terrible? So, what did Ham do that was so terrible? So, he saw his father naked and gossiped about it. So, that, that seems to be a shaming thing that's not okay. The. It doesn't necessarily satisfy the rabbis. Hence the story in the Talmud. So what? So some scholars want to say the reason we have castration in the Talmud is because that's what Ham did. 
all of these stories have sons castrating their father. So that is what Ham did. But the authors of Genesis were so horrified by that that they leave it out. It's clear that this is a tele, what they call a telescoped story. There's too many holes. We see this a lot in Torah. We've talked about it a lot. That's why one of the reasons these texts are fun, right? Because we get to say, what's going on? Because it's been telescoped. So it's all, either people knew these stories, and so you don't have to say the C word, right? Like, you know, it's just like too delicate to like put there, but everyone knew that's what Ham did. This, some other scholars want to say absolutely not absolutely not why would they have why do some scholars have a problem saying these stories are the basis for this it just got left out the castration just kind of got left out but these are the basis what what why would the scholars have a problem with that That's what this is for sure. I mean, it, for sure. Due to their fathers to individuate, and doesn't every son? So for sure, right? There's this genre of mythology that comes out of the reality that sons have to, in some way, destroy, right, the the sexual vigor of their fathers in order to in order to become that themselves. Surely, that's their fueling every father-son narrative ever told. Why would some scholars say absolutely not? Is there other castration? There is, there's eunuchs in the Torah. We don't see castration that I know of. Wasn't it associated with the covenant of circumcision? Mm-hmm. Castration, no. All right, people, come with me. Reuben! You know, why would why would this being the basis be a problem for because folks? It gives ideas. Because it gives people ideas. <laughs> Who's Uranus? A Greek god. Thank you. Thank you. Who's El? Who's Uranus? Who's Poseidon? Who's Cronus? They're deities. They're deities in a story that's coming to talk about how we are the only ones with a human flood survivor. You can't have stories based on deities. It goes against the entire point of telling the Noah story. There are something like 35 to 40 uh, flood allegories that go in. I I just uh, thank heavens for uh, Right, so... So if, if your whole point of having Noah stories is to say he was human, 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 had human, human, human children, and they had human, 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 humans, then wh- you can't use a story that's resonant of people, people, of, of sons becoming gods, castrating the male god and rising to the status of gods. You, you can't do, like, so do you see that? That's, that's a pretty convincing argument to me right that so so then what do you do with the castration in the Talmud (laughs) reconstruct (laughs) so for the for the scholars who say it can't be one of these stories Davka 
Dafka, if you want a human survivor, it cannot be resonant of these stories. And everyone in the neighborhood knows these stories. So if you tell a castration story, if you even go, don't put it in the word, but go, you know, you know what his son Hamdi, you like you don't even if you like hint at it, you're still you're, you're calling up. Okay, so you're saying that Ham rises to... Right, you're, you're, you can't separate those things. So if we believe that scholar, those scholars who believe that, how do they deal with the Talmud talking about castration? What are they going to do? What, they're not going to ignore it. They have to deal with it. They're scholars. They know these stories. They're not stupid. They know the castration stories in the Talmud. So how do we deal with that then? If we accept this argument that it's not one of these stories, then why does castration appear in the Talmud and how do scholars hold that? All right, so cannot, So let's look carefully at the text. Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves, shall he be to his brothers. In the Talmud, it says that Noah wanted a fourth son. And he wanted a fourth son so that fourth son could serve his brothers. The fourth son was going to essentially be a slave to the three brothers that already were. But Ham prevented that from happening by castrating Noah. And so that is why the son of Ham is cursed. Canaan in the rabbinic imagination is the fourth son of Ham. And so because you, Ham, prevented me from having a fourth son to serve as a slave, your son, your fourth son will serve as a slave to um, Israel, essentially, but shame and Yafet. Okay, so what are, what are, the, what are the rabbis doing there? <laughs> they're, they're reaching, but why? The, the rabbis reach a lot. We know that. Why? What? What are they? Get, what's the problem for them? What? What's that story answering? Why Kanaan? So you had a problem with why Kanaan? The rabbis had the same problem. Here's their answer. Of course. <laughs> right. So. So. So what I'm saying is the scholars who don't buy these stories of the neighborhood as the basis for saying castration say, then why are the rabbis dealing with castration in the Talmud? Why put it there? It's because they have to solve the problem of the transfer of the curse. The castration has nothing to do with the incident itself. It has to do with transferring the curse to Kna'an. Because they, they have to figure that out. Right? But what we know now in modern psychology, Freud would absolutely love this story. Thank you, Anna, because I think that's the, the key to this. It reveals a human tendency, not a mythic or a godly tendency. It's right in line with human psychology. Regular human yes, behavior. Behavior. Right? The, regular transfer from generation to generation. So the transfer of what? The curse? The sins of the father, sort of. Amazing. Isn't this a grandson, though? It would be grandson of the son of Ham. Yes, but it, the, the curse is, is on the son of the father. The curse should be on Ham. 
and instead it's on his son. So they're saying the curse of the father gets visited on the son. To modern life. Mm-hmm. Imagine if you were Weintraub's son. Oh, Weinstein, Weintraub. Weinstein, Weintraub, it's all the same. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, one, one at a time. I know we're all excited. The rabbis? Yes. It, it's not in the text. It, they go from, for them, it's like, how, how, how could, the, why is the curse transferred to the son? Because, right? But then there's a whole other set of scholars who don't think this is castration at all. Correct. Mm-hmm. There, there are some scholars who say, who take it at its face value. Right. Isn't there other reasons? I, I have no idea what there might be, but is there other reasons that Noah might need Ham? What other reasons? I thought you couldn't blame Hobbes and you could blame you could blame the weaker person. But I don't know anything about these people. <laughs> Nor does anybody probably really. But like if sometimes if you need somebody for something or you're dependent upon somebody, you can't blame them, but you can get mad at somebody kind of behind them. I don't know that. Hey, I mean, sure. Of course. We can it's it's fiction. We can say sure. Um, but I think the fact that Israel conquers Canaan it's just pretty clearly, it, it, for yeah. most people agree, this is here to explain how the elephant got its trunk. And what are those called, those stories? No, there's a, there's a, there's a, a scholarly term for things, right, for myths that come to explain. No, there's a, it's a very specific term, um, but it's leaving my head. Um, it's one of those. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Question at the top of page 53. The, Can you give me verse? Because I don't have a 53. The, la- the second to the last word of verse 21. Second. In our book has no vowels on it. And it's smaller. Uh, Mine has vowels. Mine has vowels. He drank of the wine? No, I see. It's the end of 21. Oh, yeah. That's right. Oh, yeah. Betoch Ohalo. Inside his tent. There's no vowels. I have vowels in mine. Okay, I didn't know if there was any significance. The word before, oh, hello, is... Betoch. No. It's in your twice. No, there's a word after betoch. Okay, whenever you see that, that is creek so you're pointing, those of you at home, um, it has been indicated that in the women's Torah commentary, they're, the wor- they're inserted before the word ohalo is another spelling of that same word in gray. It's not in black. Gray means it's what we call a creative. It's written the black. You read it the gray. It's understood to either be a scribal error that we correct by how we read it, right? Um, or, or it's... So, um, so oh, hello, look at how it's spelled. It, in black. Look at what, how does oh, hello appear? What are the letters, Rita? In the black, not the gray. 
Aleph Hey Lamed Hey, which means what? In the black. You mean the gray. The gray. Yeah. The gray. The gray. The gray. The gray. Sorry. The gray has the hay. It's okay. Okay. So written in the Torah is Aleph Hey Lamed Hey. What does that mean, Rita? Aleph Lamed Aleph Hey Lamed Hey. What would that mean? Forget what you saw on the page. Aleph Hey Lamed Hey. What would that mean? Betoch. Oh, hala! In her tent. So it's a creek right? So it can't be her tent because it's his tent. So you read Aleph Hey Lamed Vav because it's Oh, hello, his tent. But but people are not going to change, God forbid, what's written in the Torah, right? Now. Now, if it's ohala, if we if we really want to go there, as we did with Rebecca, what did we do with? Re- why did we go here with Rebecca? Do you remember? Tell me. Because she's described as a lad. She's described as a naar. She's described as a lad. A naar, and we always do right. We say, oh, it means naara. So, if we want to say, as we have, remember we've studied in um, Torah queries about querying the text, about possibly, it's on purpose that she's referred to as a na'ar, that she has the qualities of a male. She's strong, she's fast, she's smart, she's independent. And so maybe there's a tradition of kind of a play on her gender. Um, if we want to go there, what would it mean here? If we want to, let's take Ahala seriously, what would it mean? No, he came upon his parents making love. It, okay, so either he's in a woman's tent. That does not seem so terribly shocking to me. Let's queer the text and stay with Ohala. Let's stay with Ohala, not in someone else's tent. Take it literally. And he was lying naked in her tent. What if he's been castrated? What if his manhood has been removed? What if his manhood is gone? It's ohala. Right. Oh, so castrate, somebody, a man who's been castrated is an ohala? No. It, but I'm saying it's, it's, it's her, the text says her tent. But it's, it's Noah's tent. But what if Noah's no longer an intact male? Maybe there's a hint in the ktiv that He's been emasculated. But isn't uncovering nakedness sometimes mean uh, like he uncovered her nakedness, a male to a female, that he had intercourse with her? Yes. So is it possible that really the issue here is that he was masturbating? No. Because he uncovered his own nakedness. No, it's more, it seems more that the, the problem is that Ham comes in. Right and sees it. Right. So, pos- so that's where that's where homosexual activity is indicated, right? If if someone's nakedness is uncovered and you're there, okay. there's uh, okay. right there's some possibility of what that euphemism is is there's been sexual contact. Correct. So for the rabbis, there is a tradition of he raped him. So incest, rape, male on male contact, like all of those things would have been horrifying to the rabbis. 
I want to be here when you do this. All these interpretations and counterinterpretations. Unbelievably convoluted. That's Torah. That's Right. So, but remember that Talmud is is holy game playing. Right? You're sitting in a, in a room with a bunch of other men, schmoozing, and, and you're there all day long. Like that's, that's what they did. That was their fun. That was their intellectual and other kinds of fun was to figure out how, why Canaan? Why is Canaan? That, that's, it bugged them. It was problematic to them. And so they, so they have to find, right, well, what might have happened that we don't have here that could justify Cursing Kna'an instead of Ha, right? Because it was in the tank. Ham came in and saw him. We don't have anything about Kna'an until the curse. Um, what the, you know, one of the things that we've talked about a few times is that <clears throat> the Canaanites are basically us. That's where we really came from. Right. Would <clears throat> the, the scholars who wrote these stories in the Talmud have had that understanding as well and understood that they were <laughs> separate, able to separate what is mythical from what was real. Unlikely. They, they, they the word of God. They, right, they probably bought the idea that there was a conquest. They, we really were in Egypt. And all we really were in Egypt. Out. We really conquered Canaan. We really took right. their land. We really killed them all. You know, like, um, and, and often the Canaanites are portrayed as being hypersexual. And um, and involved in all kinds of you know bacchanalian right. stu- bad stuff, bad stuff right? Mine. So for this for sure fits. And so <laughs> so it right and so, so that's the other thing, Rita, is that there's a culture by the time of the Talmud. There's already a culture of those horrid sexual Canaanites who do these lurid, terrible things, right? So it's not as far a jump for them as it is for us, right? To make. That so something licentious happened, or you, you know. But for the rabbis of the Talmud, this text was true with a capital T. Yes. That there was no. That, that this happened. Their, their challenge was, what does it mean? Not, could it just have been written some later time? That correct. That we sometimes look at that. So correct. For them, this, this is was the true, God, and it was dictated. It happened. So then we have to know what isn't here, because if this happened, and God, you know, and and God allows Canaan to be cursed, there has to be something missing. But do you see what I'm saying? For, for I, I, I think that there's a, a, a for me there's an explanation. And what's that? Well, I think it's possible also that um, Noah exposed himself to him, that he mm. didn't just come in and see it. Mm. And then I think there's a, a, some amount of guilt involved and embarrassment. And I think that therefore you're going to probably I think it's a much harder on Ham to have his son cursed than to have himself cursed. So that to me is more of a, uh, an explanation of why it would be his son and not him. So Noah's a monster then? Because he not only exposes himself, but then curses, figures out how to hurt Ham even worse? Curse an unborn son. Oh, you told. I'm embarrassed and you told. I exposed myself to you. You told. Okay. So, so then we can live with. So, can we live with Canaan being cursed? Well, then I, mean, I don't know. If you, I mean, if that's if that's one way of looking at it, then I think you, that's an explanation of why you would skip the 
But in your case, but do you but do you understand why the rabbis would be horrified by that? I understand. Right. So that so that does not exist. Yes. Yes, and you can understand why the tradition would be absolutely not. Right. Because then it can't justify because because then Canaan is completely innocent, and it can't justify Israel conquering Canaan. Right. So that's why an interpretation like that would never fly <laughs> with the rabbis. All right. It's very Barbara. Say it again. What's the problem? They're the same. For Torah, it's the same. 100%. That's why the story is here about a person. There's no person, Kanaan. It's a story made up about a person named Kanaan because the land is named Kanaan. There was no person, Yisrael. There's a story made up about a person named Yisrael because the land is Yisrael. It's a personification of the land. There's no difference. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. So that the land gets taken by Israel, by Shem and Yafet's descendants, us. We take Kna'an, the land. So it's, it's a justification. It's a tale, you know, justifying that move, essentially. Yes. But there's there's nothing to indicate that he was. When he sees what his youngest son had done to him, the text seems very clear that it's his youngest son, Ham, who has done something. There is no move to say cursed be Canaan. I'm not... Yes, you're right. Okay, maybe Canaan was in there too, but the text doesn't say that. So for the for the tradition, for us as readers, it's like, well, why Canaan then, right? So sure, you could say, well, because he was in there too. But it doesn't really answer, why not Ham? Because the text seems so clear. And Torah doesn't, Torah doesn't go to, we know Torah. It, it's very terse. If it's going to tell us it's Dafka, the youngest son, it's very hard to make the jump to his his son being cursed. It just doesn't, it doesn't hold up. Barbara. The thing that's confusing to me is that Noah is the person that was, that saved civilization and also was chosen to save civilization. So how did he go from being that guy? All right, so anybody want to answer that? He's the savior of humanity. How could this happen? There's a lot of sides to a powerful man. There's a lot of sides to even a hero. How do the rabbis feel about Noah? What's our what's our proof? What where do they go for proof that eh, that Noah was righteous in his generation, not that he was righteous stam. Righteous period. They don't want to make him anywhere near a deity. He, what's the other problem for the rabbis with Noah? 
He was righteous in his generation. So he wasn't all that great. He was better than the guys around him. What, what is one of the ways? <laughs> he was above average. <laughs> so what, what is one of the ways the rabbis know that? How do they know that? He didn't, he didn't argue back. When God announced that I'm just going to toast the earth, uh, he, say, he basically said, you know, fine, what do you want me to do? Not, well, what about some of the other people? They're not so bad. Are you going to get rid of them too? He didn't, he didn't argue with God like Abraham. Exactly. Noah didn't argue. Yeah. With God, Jew. Bad, bad Jew, Jew. <laughs> like you're, you're, you're not even a Jew, yeah, right? right? <laughs> Abraham, right? So, right, you, he was okay, but he didn't argue with God. How good can he actually be if he didn't challenge the divine? How righteous can you be? Like, how? That is so Jewish. It's so crazy. Other people would say righteousness is defined by. Obedience to God. How do Jews define a hero and someone who's righteous? Somebody who argues with God. How could you do this? Master of the universe. You say you're just and you're going to destroy innocent lives? How could you possibly do that? What will they say about you in Egypt? <laughs> right? That's a good hero. That's a Jewish righteous hero. There you go. All right. So, so for all of these reasons, Noah is really... He's not, he's not the greatest guy. So when we say he's the savior of human, for the rabbis, really, mm -mm. and even if you look at Torah texts, it's eh, he's righteous in his generation. Like, right? Um, and there's another one that says, um, Avraham walked, the Torah tells us Avraham walked before God, and it tells us Noah walked with God. The difference being, Noah needed God's support, Avraham didn't. Right, so everywhere they find proof that Noah was not the great righteous hero of you know of the Torah, or at all. It's just that he was the best around. Well, you know, if you're going to start was. over, he, he was the best there was to start with. God had to pick somebody, um, and so it's you know, so that's something for us to remember. Is that the t Torah, the tradition, nobody feels particularly great about Noah. So it's not hard, and then this doesn't help, right? <laughs> this doesn't help lift, you know, the profile uh, at all of Noah. And it's kind of what we're left with, right? He dies. And the years of Noah came to 950, and then he died. Like right after this incident, he's dead, right? So... Not that, not that the, not the greatest story to go out on, right? Like if you're gonna go out, it ain't Moses and the kiss of God. You know what I'm saying? It's like he's drunk, he curses people, he's naked, boom, he's dead. Right? Yeah, it's not even like Jacob with his sons. Exactly. All right, so we're gonna take it past the. Don't worry, I'm gonna rescue it for you. <laughs> we're gonna take it past the kind of literal focus we've been on, and we'll go to. I'm so sorry, these did not get stapled. I forgot to hit staple. So you're going to take pages one through six. Thank God they're numbered. All right? Because we know what happens in this group <laughs> if I tell you how many to take. So it's numbered. Take through page six. This is the... Um, this is Rabbi Mark Margolius writing for the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. As you know, I study it with a Haruta partner. We've been studying for... I guess five years now, every week uh, through the IJS, the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. 
And so this was the text that we studied this week uh, together, Mia and Chabruta, by, again, Rabbi Mark Margolius. And he brings this text. He, he can pick anything from Noah he wants to write about for us to study. He picked this text this week, um, which I found fascinating. So he's going to walk us through that text on page one. He'll walk us through what we just read, uh, ending with verse 27, that may God enlarge Yafet and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and may Canaan be a servant to them. I think I made 30 copies. I think we have 34 people. So if somebody's willing to share, I want to make sure we get everybody's eyes on a page. Did Noah raise anything except one? Um, I don't know. Presumably, if we were to use you know, our imagination, he would be f- taking everything that he carried on the ark and planting everything. But it points out, the only thing that's pointed out in the Torah is, is why he raised wine. Correct. So when you're talking about, no, it's not such a great God, um, you know, all things considered about vintners, um, you know, it, it's probably... Not sustain, you know, it's not a sustained something that's going to sustain a population. Right, like his his priority, right? The only thing we hear about was his priority was those grapevines, right? Which again, like, it doesn't you know speak terribly well of Noah. All right, look at page two. And Rabbi Margolius writes, in this troubling passage, the behavior of Noah's son Ham is contrasted with that of his brothers Shem and Yafet. Ham is criticized not only for seeing his father's nakedness. The Talmudic uh, Midrash in Sanhedrin expands on Ham's offense, saying that he castrated or sexually abused his father, but also for telling his brothers about it. Right? Um, we're not going to look at the Chizkuni text to go down. In contrast to Ham, Shem and Yafet take pains to neither witness nor discuss their father's embarrassment. The text describes them as walking backward to avoid seeing Noah and emphasizes the point by adding that their faces were turned away, which Rashi interprets as meaning that even when they needed to turn around to cover their father's nakedness, they continued to avert their eyes. While Ham apparently seeks out and publicizes his father's shame, Shem and Yafet protect his and their dignity by steadfastly refusing to see and discuss it. Assuming that each of us possesses some measure of the qualities of these three siblings within us, why do we sometimes seek out and magnify the embarrassment of others and other times refrain from ridicule? The Baal Shem Tov, the founder of modern Hasidism, is reputed to have taught that the world is a mirror, that our interpretation of external stimuli reflects our inner life and thoughts. When we are disturbed by the actions of another, teaches the Besht, the Baal Shem Tov, rather than judge the other, we should notice and address the presence of similar traits within ourselves. We may justify our inclination to witness and speak of others' shameful behavior on the basis of a commitment to justice and righteousness. But often, at least in part, our focus on the shame of others may reflect our desire to deny or repress our own self-shaming thoughts and fears, our own shadow or yetzer hara, our so-called evil inclination, right? So the Hasidic tradition you know, and other parts of our tradition are going to take Ham, Shem, and Yafet and make them aspects of ourselves. And there's a part of us that wants to, like Ham, lift up and point out and publicize someone else's shame, Noah's nakedness and his behavior. We love to do that, don't we? 
Like we love to point. Did you hear? Right. Isn't that why gossip is considered one of the worst things? Absolutely. Absolutely. And not only because it's so damaging to other people, but because for the Hasidic tradition, for you know the Musar tradition, it's because it's so damaging to us. Because we become ham, looking constantly for other people's shame and a way to publicize that and lift it up. And why do we do that? What is that about? Right? It's often about our own discomfort, like with ourselves, of course, right? And so, because if, if I humiliate you, don't I feel a whole lot better about me? And the need to do that often comes out of, because I'm not okay with me. I'm not okay with my shadow, my own, incl- you know, my own shame, if you will. Even in more modern literature, um, you know, Shakespeare refers to people protesting too much. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, if you, you know, if you are if you are called out on something, and you know, you say, "Oh no, 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 I would never think of doing that." It's it's not you're you're not really talking about somebody else's behavior anymore. You're talking about things that you suspect are going on with inside you. Right. There have even been people who've accused other people of doing things that they themselves do. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I I know it's hard to believe. I know it's hard to believe. But it does happen. It does happen. There are exceptions to that. For example, if you see somebody, for instance, uh, going out with someone that you know has committed a terrible crime and that person is keeping it a secret to warn that person. Okay, that's different different than what they're talking about here, I think. They're talking here about shame and and publicizing and celebrating someone else's right. shame right. T- to warn a person you know about somebody there whatever is one thing and yes. and you and you don't necessarily take pleasure in that Th- this is i think suggestive of when we seek it out yes. and kind of like it and, and even we when you start to talk about people and all you say are good things you're setting up a situation where somebody else might say, but did you know that? Right. So All right, let's, just let's to go to page four at the top of the page. When we notice our internal ham, our reactive instinct to observe and gossip about the mistakes and misfortunes of others, our practice invites us to see that instinct clearly as it is. It encourages us to observe and apply compassion, the midah of rachamim, to the extent to which this instinct may be attributable to our own excessively fear and shame-based thoughts and feelings. The yetzer hara, the evil inclination, after all, serves an important, even sacred, protective function. Thus, when faced with a situation in which our shadow might lead us to participate in shaming others, our hitlamdut, our curious, non-judgmental attention, can wake us up to the bechira, the choice, of emulating shame and yafet, the quote, better angels of our nature, by averting our eyes and closing our mouths. We might then wake up to yet another bechira, right? Another choice point, an awareness that rather than yielding to the instinct to judge others, we might instead search for the good in them. This is the midah of ayin tov, the good eye, training our eyes to see the best in others and ourselves instead of the worst. So the first Bechira point is I have the choice when when it comes up, I have the choice to lean into Midah HaRachamim, lean into the aspect, what, what did I say Midah is? What do you, you always translate it so good? 
Robert Mida. Um, no, attribute is better, but um, anyway, I'll just the say the character trait. It's a little mouthy, but the character trait of <laughs> rachamim, right? Of mercy. It's these are all amida in Hebrew is something that you practice, right? To, it's a spiritual discipline, and so it's an aspect of the spiritual discipline, and this is the aspect of rachamim, of mercy. So when it rises up, I can choose to lean into the midah of rachamim, of mercy, avert my eyes, and close my mouth. That's the first bechira. That's the first point of choice. I can choose not to say something. I can choose to turn off the television, close my mouth, and walk away, right? That there's a further choice point if we're really trying to develop ourselves as spiritually mature human beings. What he's saying is that there's another there's another level to go. And and this one I'm not going to use the TV because I can't do it. But <laughs> but there's a person we want you know that, that we're, we're ready to celebrate their shame, right? Right? Um, I can close my eyes, avert my eyes, shut my mouth, but I can also go one step further and. For me, the way I do this is hold that person as a four-year-old. Like, can I hold, in my mind, hold this person as a four-year-old? Because something happened to that four-year-old that, that made this person, like, right? So I, that's Ayin Hatov. Can I look at them with, with real Rahmanis, real compassion, and a real attempt to find something good? I'm just saying. I said I can't. I can't use the television example because I can't do it. Um, right? I'm trying to give a realistic example that I might could actually do in real life. And so with a human being, I, you know, it's like so. This this is the practice. The ayin hatov, using the ayin hatov to look for actively look for the good in someone when our inclination is to lift up, right? Their bad. Their shameful. Um, aspects. Drop down to the bottom of page four. Do we have a sense of how young he was at that point? Who? Think, no. I mean, was he so much younger that he was um, just acting like, acting out like a 12 year old? We, we, we don't know. Um, bottom of four. In this week of Noah, may we notice and learn from our reactive habit of seeking out and celebrating fault in others. May we observe the ways in which our own inner shadow generates such reactions and hold our challenging emotions and thoughts in compassion. May we still our soul and soften our heart enough to manifest the midah of Ayin Tov, turning our attention over and over to that which is good in each person and in each moment. A beautiful teaching for uh, Shabbat, a way to redeem some of of this text. Um, And on five, I love this... uh, just to give you a little learning around Shabbat, because it is Shabbat, uh, the seventh stanza of Lechadodi, the liturgical poem sung to welcome Shabbat on Friday night, sees redemptive value in the process of reducing our inner sense of shame and humiliation. Lo tevoshi velo tekalmi, ma tishtochachi umatehemi. Do not be ashamed or humiliated. Why be depressed and upset? This week, we pay special attention to our own predilection for embarrassment and shame, and in such moments, call to mind a positive aspect of ourselves. So we're supposed to apply this outwardly, but as Lachadodi says, and we should also turn it inwardly, and when we feel our own shame, or our own sense of, right, not good enough, or whatever it is, fill in the blank, 
um, to use the ayin hatov and the, the midah of rachamim um, on ourselves, to hold ourselves with great compassion, tenderness, and love. Shabbat shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.